You've got shit. I've got shit. We've all got shit. So let's therapize that shit with your host, me, Joy Gerhard. Please note, I am not a therapist. I cannot and do not diagnose anyone or prescribe anything. This is just me, someone who struggles with mental illness, emotions, and intrusive thoughts, sharing what skills I've used and how I've used them. Also, trigger warning, in this podcast, I talk about sensitive topics including mental illness, suicidal ideation, self-harm, rape, childhood sexual assault, trauma, and more. I also swear here and there, so listener discretion is advised. If you're new to the podcast, some context for you. I've gotten a ton of value out of doing group therapy and watching others process their shit. In group, I can see other people's patterns and behaviors much more clearly because they aren't my patterns and behaviors, but rather they're adjacent to mine. It's such a relief. I want to share this relief with you via this podcast, wherein I practice skills while actually in the thick of shit. Each episode, I typically do an introduction and provide some context. Then I play a recording of me actively dealing with shit. This isn't me talking about psychology or theories. I'm actually in distress, having strong emotions and strong urges. You're going to hear me crying, angry, numb. But my intention is always to move through an emotion, never to stay there. So stick with me, and we'll actually come out on the other side by the end of the episode. Alrighty, let's hop to it. Welcome, welcome, and happy Halloween. I'm not doing anything this year because I still have bronchitis. It's the cough that never ends. So I will be staying home today and watching a bunch of horror movies. I've been watching one a day for the last three weeks, and today it's just going to be a marathon of a bunch of my favorite horror movies. My favorite of which, in case you were wondering, is The Exorcist the director's cut, ideally, because it has a lot of additional creepy stuff in there that the theatrical release does not. Okay, so uh, this episode is a continuation of the previous episode, episode 25. And if you haven't listened to that one, this episode won't make sense. So stop whatever you're doing and go listen to that one first, because that one gives all of the context for this episode, because I'm not going to repeat all of the context here. I will, however, do a brief recap. Previously on Let's Therapize That Shit, for you West Wing fans out there, that's really showing my age here. Alrighty, on the previous episode, I was filling out a questionnaire for an autism assessment and had a ton of very, very strong distress come up. I couldn't have told you what the emotion was. It felt like fear because there was a I'm in danger component, but it also felt like disgust because I felt sick to my stomach and also maybe sadness because I kind of wanted to curl up and and hide and be alone. Uh, so I dug into Emotion Regulation Handout 6, which dedicates a page to each of 10 main families of emotions. So what events and thoughts trigger those emotions, what each emotion feels like in our bodies, what each emotion looks like from the outside and how each emotion echoes and lingers throughout the day. And in going through the pages for each emotion, I realized that I was experiencing shame. 
specifically around these three statements on the questionnaire. Number one, I have trouble keeping up with the flow of conversation. Number two, I am awkward in turn-taking interactions with others. I have a hard time keeping up with the give and take of a conversation. And number three, I do not recognize when others are trying to take advantage of me. As I said in much more detail in the disclaimer for the previous episode, this is not justified shame. It is not justified shame. It is valid. It is not justified. And I'll get into the difference between a valid emotion and a justified emotion in the recording that I'm about to play for you. So given that I know my shame around having certain symptoms of autism is not justified, and I don't want to feel shame, what do I do now? I'm so glad you asked. And in a second, I'm going to pass the mic to past Joy so she can tell you the answer. The recording I'm about to play for you was recorded just a few hours after the bulk of the recording from the previous episode. It was recorded on April 2nd, 2022. This commentary is being recorded on October 31st, 2022, so about six and a half months later. Some brief orientation before I play the recording for you. Most of the skills I reference are from the DBT manual by Marsha Linehan. DBT stands for Dialectic Behavioral Therapy and is my therapy type of choice. The manual is linked in the description both in PDF form and where you can buy a hard copy. And whenever I'm quoting the DBT manual or really anyone else's work other than my own, as you just heard when I read the statements from the questionnaire, I turn on reverb so that I sound like I'm in a Benedictine monastery or more accurately, a Benedictine monastery bathroom. (laughs) And um, one more thing before I forget, a huge thank you to my Patreon supporters, Anne and Ruth, y'all are rock stars and are 92.3% of the reason that this podcast exists for public consumption. So thank you so much. And if you, dear listener, would like to support this podcast, the link to my Patreon is in the description. Okay, so that pretty much covers everything. Let's dig into our recording. Past Joy, take it away. So there's two main reasons why I'd want to change my emotional response. One, if it's not justified. Justified and valid are two very different things. Justified means it fits the facts of the situation. Valid means it is caused and comes from something. 100% of my emotions are valid. 100%. They're all caused by something. They all make sense given my entire history, my thought process, my beliefs, my experiences. All of that will have any emotion that I have make sense. Even if there are parts of it that I don't understand. It makes sense. Somehow it does, even if I'm not aware of how it does. Justified means it fits the facts of the situation. So the example that I gave two episodes ago, episode 24, when I was talking about the difference between an event and interpretations, when my former partner broke up with me, what he said was, I don't want to be in a relationship anymore. It's too hard. That is the event. That is the thing that happened. That's the facts. My interpretations were then, I'm unlovable, No one will ever love me. Like my mental illness precludes me ever being wanted by anyone. Like I am too damaged for other people to want. Those are my interpretations and they do not fit the facts. It makes sense. They are 100% valid. Like there is a reason I had all those thoughts. They all came from someplace. And there's a reason I had really strong emotions come up because of those thoughts. Like I had a huge amount of shame, a huge amount of sadness. And it makes sense that I would have a lot of shame and sadness because of those thoughts. So my emotions were valid and they were not justified. 
sadness from the breakup is absolutely justified and does fit the facts. But like the the sadness and the shame that I was experiencing around like being unlovable did not fit the facts. Like what happened was my former partner ended our relationship. What didn't happen was that no one will ever love me. Like that's not a thing that happened in that moment. That's a thought that I had. And of course, that thought would trigger sadness and shame. So there is a distinction between justified and valid. Okay, so there's three big ways in DBT to change emotional responses. And the reason you'd want to change an emotional response is that one, it's not justified, like it doesn't fit the facts of what's actually happening. Two, it's not effective in this current situation. Like if, like if I'm experiencing a lot of anxiety on an airplane, it is not effective for me to get up and start screaming and run up and down the aisle, right? Like if I have extreme stage fright, it may not be effective for me to go up and give a speech while crying the entire time because it's hard for people to understand what I'm saying when I'm crying. So there's nothing wrong with those emotions. It's that expressing them in that moment, in that situation is not effective. Okay, so changing emotional responses, there's three big tools um, that DBT uses, and this is from Emotion Regulation Handout 7. Number one, check the facts. Two, opposite action. And three, problem solving. So let me say more about each of those. Check the facts. Check out whether your emotional reactions fit the facts of the situation. Changing your beliefs and assumptions to fit the facts can help you change your emotional reactions to situations. And that's absolutely true. Like a lot of my despair post-breakup was because I was having the thought, no one will ever love me. And that's totally future-based. I don't know the future. And once I could identify that that was the thought that was triggering a lot of my shame and a lot of my despair, I could get that little pry bar in between the event, the breakup, and my thoughts about the event and create some space. And there was absolutely still sadness like it was sadness that no longer being with my former partner, there was sadness at like having to move out and the the loss of the life that I thought I was going to have. And all of that is absolutely justified and absolutely valid. And the despair that I had about like never being loved in the future, it was valid. It came from somewhere and it did not fit the facts. It wasn't justified. I was aware, and there are podcast episodes about this, that getting that pry bar in between and checking the facts and distinguishing the event from my interpretations is what had me shift out of like abject despair and shame to just deep sadness. I don't like want to say just deep sadness because it was still a lot of sadness. And it wasn't this kind of like, my life is over type sadness. It was a lot more bittersweet, I guess. So yeah, like it says here, changing your beliefs and assumptions to fit the facts can help you change your emotional reactions to situations. Okay, the second way to change emotional responses is opposite action. When your emotions do not fit the facts, or when acting on your emotions is not effective, acting opposite all the way will change your emotional reactions. And that's what we're going to talk about today. But the third thing on this page here is problem solving. When the facts themselves are the problem, Solving the problem will reduce the frequency of negative emotions. So I'm trying to think of a good example for that. Oh, here's, yeah, my mom with the door lock. So I told this story in part one of this episode. My mom 
for my entire adult life has just walked into my room without knocking or will knock and then not wait for me to say anything and just come in. And that fact that she does that was a problem and was causing a huge amount of distress for me. Like I was furious a lot of the time. So solving the problem, like putting a lock on the door. And I also put a sign out there that says, do not knock, do not talk through the door, no exceptions. That certainly like it reduced my anxiety like a ton. I had spent all this time judging and wanting her to just change her behavior because she heard my boundaries and wanted to respect them. And me judging her was not solving the problem. So solving the problem, putting a lock on the door, like made a marked difference in my anxiety levels, like big, huge difference and my anger also. So those are the three main ways of changing emotional responses. We're going to focus on opposite action, which again, per emotion regulation handout seven, when your emotions do not fit the facts or when acting on your emotions is not effective, acting opposite all the way will change your emotional reactions. I am clear that the shame that I'm experiencing and that I described in the previous episode doesn't fit the facts. Like I, I'm having a deep, oh my God, like I'm having such, my gut is, in, is so tense right now, like pit in my stomach, there's dread, I'm dreading, oh my God, this is trippy. <sighs> I am like logically with my brain aware that my friends will probably not reject me because of my experience around conversations. So I don't think shame fits the facts. I don't think I will be rejected or judged and I'm still having shame. So how do I know to use opposite action instead of say problem solving? This is emotion regulation handout nine entitled opposite action and problem solving, deciding which to use. Opposite action is acting opposite to an emotion's action urge. So like for me, shame has me want to hide. Problem solving is avoiding or changing solving a problem event. So the first question I'm going to ask is, does this emotion fit the facts? What skill do I use here? Check the facts. That's emotion regulation handout eight. Let's talk about that. So we're going to take a brief detour away from emotion regulation handout nine for a second. The question we're trying to answer here is which skill to use to change my emotional response. We'll come back to this choose your own adventure sort of flow of questions in a second, because right now we're going to go talk about emotion regulation handout eight, which is check the facts. And I will make a very obvious note when we have returned to emotion regulation handout nine and the detour is over. Emotion regulation handout eight is check the facts. Let's start by addressing what are facts. <laughs> Seems like a fairly obvious question, and yet somehow it's not. Many emotions and actions are set off by our thoughts and interpretations of events, not by the events themselves. So chronologically, there's an event that triggers thoughts, and the thoughts trigger the emotions. Our emotions can also have a big effect on our thoughts about events. So chronologically, you'd have an event that triggers emotions, and the emotions trigger thoughts. I know this is getting a little bit into the weeds here. We've talked about this before when I've talked about the e-wheel, which is emotion regulation handout five, the alternative version that I've linked in the description, that an event can happen, and we can have emotions as a direct result of the event itself. There's no interpretations. The event happens. We have emotions. 
like getting scared. Somebody jumping out at me in the hallway will trigger fear. I don't have to have thoughts. Oh my God, I'm in danger. That then triggers fear. No, the event triggers the emotions. And then I can have thoughts as a result of that. Absolutely. Like the person who jumped out at me is an asshole. I'm not safe in my own home. Like all of these other thoughts can happen afterwards. Or the event can happen and that triggers thoughts. So the event itself is not what causes our emotions. The event causes thoughts, which then trigger emotions. And I've used this example over and over again. I'm just going to be repeating. This whole podcast is me repeating myself because I'm trying to drive home the points for myself and also for you, dear listener. But an event can happen, like my partner breaking up with me, and I can have the thought, I'm going to be alone forever, and that will trigger despair. The thing is, I'm going to be alone forever wasn't what happened. My partner broke up with me. That's what happened. And that event, being broken up with, can absolutely trigger sadness. Of course it does. And that's justified. And if I'm experiencing despair, that's an intensity of sadness that is not congruent with the facts. The sadness is justified. The despair is not. It doesn't fit the facts. Both of them are valid. Like, if I'm having despair... That despair is coming from somewhere and makes sense given what preceded it. Of course, the thought I'm going to be alone forever would trigger despair. And it doesn't fit the facts. So getting back to emotion regulation handout eight here, examining our thoughts and checking the facts can help us change our emotions. How to check the facts? I'm so glad you asked. I'm about to tell you. Step one, ask, what is the emotion I want to change? And if you are like me and have alexithymia, an inability to know (laughs) what emotion you're having, the emotion regulation handout six, which is ways of describing emotions, is really super helpful for that. Step two, ask, what is the event prompting my emotion? Describe the facts that you observed through your senses. Challenge judgments, absolutes, and black and white descriptions. Something to keep in mind, I've said before that the way to observe, and observing is a mindfulness skill described in Mindfulness Handout 4, if you want to read more about it, is to use your five senses. And the five senses are touch, taste, hearing, sight, and smell. Another sense that we have is interospection, like our ability to know what's going on inside of us so we can observe our thoughts. And we can also observe our internal body sensations, like, you know, stomach gurgling, or you have a sore throat or whatever, you're not touching anything, but you can feel it inside your body. So that also is included in what we can observe. We can't observe those things for anybody else, but we can observe them for ourselves. So again, step two was what is the event prompting my emotions? Describe the facts that you observed through your senses, which includes interospection, and challenge judgments, absolutes, and black and white descriptions, which is the skill of non-judgment. And that's emotion regulation handout five. I've gone over that in past episodes a ton because I judge a lot. So I'm constantly having to work on practicing non-judgment. Step three, ask, what are my interpretations, thoughts, and assumptions about the event? Think of other possible interpretations. Practice looking at all sides of a situation and all points of view. Test your interpretations and assumptions to see if they fit the facts. Step four, ask, am I assuming a threat? Label the threat. Assess the probability that the threatening event will really occur. Think of as many other possible outcomes as you can. 
Step five, ask, what's the catastrophe? Imagine the catastrophe really occurring. Imagine coping well with a catastrophe through problem solving, coping ahead, or radical acceptance. Step six, ask, does my emotion and or its intensity fit the actual facts? Check out facts that fit each emotion. And there's a handout for that. Emotion regulation handout 8A gives examples of emotions that fit the facts, like they're justified. Another way to ask whether your emotion or its intensity fit the actual facts, ask wise mind. Wise mind is a mindfulness skill, and we've talked about that before in previous episodes. It's mindfulness handout three, if you want to check that out. So those are the six steps for how to check the facts more generally. And now I'm going to go through them really quickly here for my current situation of experiencing shame around this autism questionnaire. So how to check the facts. Step one, ask, what is the emotion I want to change? In this case, I know it's shame. And I went over that in a lot of detail in the previous episode, episode 25. So yes, the emotion I want to change is shame. Step two, ask, what is the event prompting my emotion? Describe the facts that you observed through your senses, which again, include interospection. So my own observation of my insides. Challenge judgments, absolutes, and black and white descriptions. Okay, so the event prompting my emotion, I was reading a questionnaire, the SRS2, and there were three statements that I read that had me feeling a lot of shame because I indicated that I strongly identified with these statements. The statements were, I have trouble keeping up with the flow of conversation. I am awkward in turn-taking interactions with others. I have a hard time keeping up with the give and take of a conversation. And... I do not recognize when others are trying to take advantage of me. So those are the things that I read, and then I had a lot of shame come up in my body. So step three, ask, what are my interpretations, thoughts, and assumptions about the event? Think of other possible interpretations. Practice looking at all sides of a situation and all points of view. Test your interpretations and assumptions to see if they fit the facts. So in this case, I had a bunch of interpretations, and I actually talked about this at length in the preceding episode, so I won't get into it a ton here. And I was having thoughts that I'm juvenile, I'm immature, I'm unable to function as an adult, um, I am lacking in some way, and that I should be embarrassed. And I had the thought that my friends would reject me, that people, like just in general, would reject me for struggling under the circumstances I just described. I'm assuming that people are going to reject me. I'm assuming that people are going to judge me. I'm assuming that I will not be welcome in conversations. Step four, ask, am I assuming a threat? Label the threat. Assess the probability that the threatening event will really occur. Think of as many other possible outcomes as you can. The threat I'm assuming is judgment and rejection, that people will hear this about me, They will judge me as being immature or lacking or incapable, and they will reject me. They won't want to participate in conversations with me. Now, assessing the probability that that threatening event will really occur, that's where we really start to pick apart my assumptions. Because, of course, there are going to be people I could tell that to who would reject me. I'm going to focus on my friends, like my close little inner circle of 
five people or so who I feel completely safe around. So the probability of them rejecting me is very, 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 very low. Maybe 1%. I want to say zero, but just to be conservative, let's go with 1%. Other possible outcomes is I share this and my friends go, yeah, I don't care. Or my friends go, hey, me too. Or my friends ask, what can I do to help support you in these situations? Yeah, I'm imagining outcomes where they are soothing and caring and want me to feel comfortable. Step five on checking the facts, ask what's the catastrophe? Imagine the catastrophe really occurring. Imagine coping well with a catastrophe through problem solving or coping ahead or radical acceptance. So the catastrophe would be that I tell my closest friends and all of them reject me and say, fuck you. We can't handle being around somebody who is so immature and unskilled, which again, our judgments. And I lose all of these friendships and have to start from scratch in making friends. And so if that actually happened, if I were to handle that skillfully, I would self-soothe. I would validate my feelings of sadness at losing those friendships. I would allow myself time to grieve. I would probably do opposite action to love which is a useful thing to do. It's not something that most of us consider as like love is not a problematic emotion, but after a breakup or a rejection by friends, uh, it's actually really useful to do opposite action to love, which is involves a lot of like gentle avoiding and choosing not to gaze longingly at their picture or reminisce fondly of things you did together, stuff like that. So I would gently avoid my now former friends who have rejected me. I would avoid talking about fond memories that I have with them. I would probably get rid of things that they have given me that have sentimental value because they've given them to me. I would take time to grieve that loss and I would talk about it with my therapist and I would start to see what other possible friendships that I can make. Um, I would prioritize making friends with other people who are autistic because they will understand the struggle that I have around these three statements that bring up so much shame for me. So I would do a bunch of Googling, check out Meetup, Facebook, online communities, and see what sort of uh, groups I can get involved in. So that's the catastrophe and how I would handle it. And the final question on how to check the facts is number six, ask, does my emotion and or its intensity fit the actual facts? So it doesn't. Like, I haven't been rejected. I am not currently rejected. It is a very, very low likelihood that I will be rejected by my friends. So the shame that's coming up is not justified shame. It makes sense. It's valid. It comes from somewhere. It's absolutely caused. And it doesn't fit the facts of the situation. Ergo. I want to change my emotional response. And now this is my very obvious note indicating that our detour has ended and we are coming back to emotion regulation handout nine, opposite action and problem solving, deciding which to use. We just asked the question, the very first one, does this emotion fit the facts? And use the skill check the facts to answer that. In my case, the answer is no. So the next question, is acting on this emotion effective? Like, is hiding from my friends effective? The skill to use here is check wise mind. I don't even need to check wise mind. <laughs> like, if, if you wanted to check wise mind, you could do that. That would be mindfulness handout three, which goes over what wise mind is. 
And I can already tell you, it's not wise mind for me to hide from my friends. So the answer is no, which gives us the following outcome. Do not act on the emotion or action urge, i.e. don't hide from your friend's joy. Next, change thoughts to fit the facts, which brings us back to checking the facts. Uh, Motion regulation handout eight. And then the next step is do opposite action. And that is the crown jewel of DBT. Let's talk about opposite action. This is emotion regulation handout 10. Use opposite action when your emotions do not fit the facts or when acting on your emotions is not effective. The reason opposite action is like the most amazing skill, super useful, is that it basically retrains my brain that this thing that I'm worried about or afraid for or avoiding, actually doing that thing will not kill me. The more I avoid a thing, the more I avoid a situation or a behavior or an experience, the more that teaches my brain that thing is really, really scary. And my anxiety will keep going up. My ability to do that thing goes down. And so doing opposite action is basically like, it's exposure. Go do the thing you're afraid of. And and that behavior, doing that thing, rewires my brain to go, oh, this thing that I thought was going to be super scary isn't actually all that scary. Or, hey, this thing that I thought was going to be super scary, I did that thing and I was super scared. And strangely enough, that didn't kill me either. (laughs) So... Part of the problem is I have the belief that it is dangerous to feel certain emotions. I confuse my feelings with danger. Like, I don't want to feel sad. I don't want to feel afraid. I don't want to feel shame. So I avoid, avoid, avoid whatever thing would trigger those feelings. And the thing is, my emotions aren't dangerous. Like, they won't kill me. And by avoiding my emotions, I'm basically lowering my tolerance, like decreasing my tolerance to feeling strong emotion. Feeling my emotions is like, it's like a vaccine. It's like inoculation. Oh, I can feel sadness. Like I know how to do that. Oh, I'll feel a little bit more. Oh, I can feel even more sadness and it didn't kill me. I can feel fear. Doesn't kill me. I can feel even more fear. That doesn't kill me either. Like it's, it's microdosing. So it is good for me to allow those emotions to happen, to allow myself to feel those strong emotions and to train my brain. Hey, you can feel this. You can feel it all the way and it will eventually stop. Because clearly I have the belief that if I start feeling an emotional, it'll never stop. If I allow myself to feel grief, I will be grieving forever. If I allow myself to feel anger, I will be angry forever. And it turns out that's not how emotions work. Which is why opposite action really, it's training my brain, it's training our brains to realize you can feel the strong emotion and it won't kill you. So back to emotion regulation handout 10. Every emotion has an action urge. You can change the emotion by acting opposite to its action urge. It's like reverse engineering. So consider these examples. Like for the emotion of fear, the action urge is to run away or avoid. Opposite action would be approach, don't avoid. For the emotion of anger, the action urge is to attack. Opposite action for that would be to gently avoid or be a little nice. These are all dramatically oversimplified. These are just examples. We'll get into more details shortly. For the emotion sadness, the action urge is to withdraw or isolate. The opposite action would be get active or engage. For the emotion shame, the action urge is to hide or avoid. The opposite action is to tell the secret to people who will accept it. Brene Brown talks about this, about how the antidote for shame is me too. And of course, Tarana Burke, who was the founder of the Me Too movement, has said this as well. Like there's so much power in 
sharing an experience with somebody else who gets it and hearing them say back, me too. You'll notice that the opposite action says, tell the secret to people who will accept it. Like there are people I could tell my experiences to who would absolutely judge me and reject me. And that will only increase or heighten my shame. So it's actually really important to find the people who will not judge. So those are some really simple examples of opposite action. And the reason opposite action works is because an emotion will cause a behavior, like how shame will cause me to hide. And then that action, that behavior will trigger more emotion. If I'm feeling shame and so I hide, the act of hiding will actually increase my shame. And so basically we're trying to head it off at the pass. If I can change the action, my behavior, I can stop that kind of feedback loop from perpetuating. Because the feedback loop is, I have the emotion, shame in this case, I want to hide and avoid. So I do hide and avoid. Hiding and avoiding increases my shame, which has me want to hide and avoid more, which increases my shame, which has me want to hide and avoid more. And it just keeps going and going and going. That's why being in the closet is so painful. (laughs) The longer I was in the closet, the more shame I felt about being in the closet. So the way we head that off at the pass is not by changing our emotion. It's not like feel a different way. No, no, it's changing the behavior. If I can feel shame and want to hide and avoid and then not hide and avoid, like we're basically inserting a stopgap measure at that point to prevent further shame, which prevents further behavior, which prevents further shame. So this is a note from my first DBT instructor. I love it. So changing an action will change the emotion. And the reason we're choosing to focus on the action rather than the emotion, is that emotions are really hard to change because they love themselves. Like, shame loves more shame. Anger loves more anger. It's why, like, misery loves company, right? We want to commiserate with people. When I'm angry about a thing, I want to talk to a friend who will get righteously indignant on my behalf as well. My anger loves more anger. My shame loves more shame. So that is why it's harder to change the emotion and easier to change the behavior, which will then shortcut the emotion. So how to do opposite action step by step. I'm going to read all of these and then we're going to go through them for shame. Step one, identify and name the emotion you want to change. Step two, check the facts to see if your emotion is justified by the facts. Check also whether the intensity or duration of the emotion fits the facts. Like in the example here is irritation fits the facts when somebody cuts your car off in traffic. It's totally justified to be irritated by that. And if it turns into road rage, the intensity and duration of that emotion no longer fits the facts. An emotion is justified when your emotion fits the facts. Step three, identify and describe your action urges. Step four, ask wise mind, is expressing or acting on this emotion effective in this situation? And a note that I have here is also ask if I want to reduce this emotion. And there have been times, absolutely, where I'm experiencing a strong emotion and I'm like, no, I'm going to sit in it. I don't want to change this emotion. And that's totally fine. So again, opposite action. The intention is for when the emotion doesn't fit the facts, when acting on my emotion is not effective, or if the duration and intensity of the emotion is not effective. Because opposite action, the point of it is to change an emotional response. If I'm fine with my emotional response, I don't need to change it. I don't need to do opposite action. But if 
my emotions don't fit the facts, including like the intensity and duration of the emotions don't fit the facts, or when acting on that emotion isn't effective, then opposite action is a useful tool. So if your emotion does not fit the facts or if acting on your emotion is not effective, step five, identify opposite actions to your action urges. Step six, act opposite all the way to your action urges. Step seven, repeat acting opposite to your action urges until your emotion changes. And I love like Marsha Linehan, who's the person who created DBT, a lot of the skills that she describes step by step, there's typically a step that is keep doing it. Because as adults, we give up. We try a thing, we fail at it, we give up. Like my sister and I, hi Ruth, um, we'll play catch together and we're both right-handed. And when we try to throw left-handed, it's a shit show. Like, I forget what my arm is. I forget what throwing is. I forget what physics is. I don't know what my body is. Like, it is a mess. And most of the time, I'll throw left-handed and then stop. My sister and I will purposefully like, okay, we're going to throw left-handed for this game of catch we're having, like for the duration of it. And we actually make a huge amount of progress very quickly. But the only reason we ever discovered that was because we didn't stop after the first one or two pitches. So continuing to use the skill, even when it doesn't feel like it's working at the onset, is part of the skill. It's part of what has me learn the skill. It's part of what has me become skillful at the skill, is that I keep using it over and over and over again. So let's get to opposite action around shame. This is emotion regulation handout 11, figuring out opposite actions which is a lot like emotion regulation handout six in so much as each emotion gets its own page. So shame. Shame fits the facts of a situation whenever A, you will be rejected by a person or group you care about if your personal characteristics or behavior are made public. I was going to say there's B. There's no B. That's just the one. That's when it fits the facts. When you will be rejected by a person or group you care about if your personal characteristics or behavior are made public. Shame does fit the facts in that case. So next we've got follow these suggestions when both shame and guilt are not justified by the facts or are not effective. So given that shame does not fit the facts in this case, here are opposite actions for shame. Do the opposite of your action urges. For example, make public your personal characteristics or your behavior with people who won't reject you. Two, repeat the behavior that sets off shame over and over without hiding the behavior from those who won't reject you. So those are the opposite actions. Now, if we want to crank it up to 11 and go all the way, here are all the way opposite actions for shame. No apologizing or trying to make up for a perceived transgression. Taking all the information from the situation. So that's basically don't avoid. Because <laughs> remember, shame has me want to hide or run away or avoid. So taking all the information from the situation is an opposite action to shame. And lastly, change your body posture. Look innocent and proud. Lift your head, puff up your chest, maintain eye contact, keep your voice tone steady and clear. Because there's ways to do opposite action partway that are actually going to make things worse. So here's an example of partial opposite action that actually will make things worse. Let's say I have social anxiety and being in parties is really uncomfortable for me. That I'm really worried I'm going to look like an idiot, that people will be judging me, etc. So imagine a situation where I'm invited to a party of all of my closest friends. Like these are people that I know will not reject me. Opposite action would be going to the party. 
and staying at the party and like going to additional parties and staying at those parties. And if I go to that party and I am a wallflower the entire time and I'm like hiding in the kitchen or hiding in the bathroom and avoiding people. And like when people do talk to me, like I'm, I'm folded in on myself and I'm really super timid. That experience, like that body posture and the hiding will communicate to my brain, oh yeah, parties are super scary. So going to the party doesn't alleviate my fear. It actually in- increases it because now I'm here and see how scary it is. I have to hide and I can't look people in the eye and I can't talk to people and I'm super, super, super awkward. And this is bad, 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 bad. So you'll notice opposite action, but not all the way. And that opposite action is actually training my brain. Yeah, this is super scary and it will make things worse for me. All the way opposite action in this case would be going to the party and not hiding, standing up super tall engaging in conversations, interacting with people, keeping my head up, staying at the party the whole time. That's going to be the thing that will train my brain. You're not in danger. I could still be really uncomfortable. I could it could still not be my jam, and I'm not having the experience of fear, of like panic or anxiety. It's more just like ah, this is not how I would choose to spend my evening and yet here we are, you know. Um, it changes my emotional response the strength and duration of that panic and that anxiety. So opposite action all the way is a big deal. So again, for shame, opposite actions for shame include make public your personal characteristic or your behavior with people who won't reject you. Repeat the behavior that sets off shame over and over without hiding the behavior from those who won't reject you. So in my case, it would be talking to my friends. Oh, I'm having like my stomach is so upset right now. Opposite action would be talking to my friends over and over again and telling them that I have a hard time having in-person conversations and like tracking with the flow of conversations. Oh, I can feel it in my body. It's so uncomfortable. Oh my god. Okay, we're doing opposite. I'm doing opposite action right now cuz I really want to just like curl up in a ball. I'm doing willing hands. My hands are open, like palm up. My shoulders are back. I'm sitting up super tall. <sighs> opposite action here would be telling people, telling my friends that I have trouble keeping up with the flow of normal conversation and that I feel awkward in turn taking interactions with others. I have a hard time keeping up with the give and take of a conversation. <sighs> And so doing opposite action all the way would be not apologizing for that, not trying to make up for a perceived transgression, in this case, not trying to make up for my awkwardness, take in all the information from the situation. So what I want to do is avoid their reaction. I don't want to see how they process it. That feels really super dangerous. What if they judge me? So doing opposite action all the way will be actually like paying attention and checking in constantly on what the other person's face is doing, what their body posture is doing, what they're saying, all of it. And of course, the last step here, all the way opposite action for shame is changing my body posture. So sitting up super tall, chin up, looking proud, puffing out my chest, using a loud voice, not like super loud, but like not like kind of becoming super timid, I guess, but rather like say it out loud. 
I am having, guys, my stomach is in knots right now. Because <laughs> I guess, I guess technically I'm doing opposite action right now. Uh, because I'm sharing something with people who won't reject me. I'm reasonably sure that if you're listening to this podcast and you're still still listening, that you're not rejecting me. Either way, I have no way of knowing. So we're going to do opposite action again. Make public my personal characteristic or my behavior with people who won't reject me. So I'm going to say it again. I have trouble. <laughs> like I'm watching my face. I'm, I'm trying to maintain like a cheerful face like because I, I want to scowl. I want to like jut my chin out. I want to look apologetic (laughs) because it says don't apologize. So my body is like, well, we've got to find a way to look apologetic then. We must apologize for this. So let's use our face. So I'm going to smile and (laughs) and I'm judging myself for looking like an idiot right now. I'm going to smile and have my eyes wide and I'm going to have my, like my body super tall and I'm doing willing hands. I have trouble keeping up. Nope. Smile, Joy. I'm like, I can feel my jaw tensing. And I'm trying to stop that. Okay. I have trouble keeping up with the flow of a normal conversation. <laughs> I'm judging myself for looking really, really silly right now. I have trouble keeping up with the flow of a normal conversation. I am awkward in turn taking I am awkward in turn taking interactions with others. For example, I have a hard time keeping up with the give and take of a conversation. I have a hard time keeping up with the give and take of a conversation. The discomfort I'm feeling has moved up from my gut, like it's kind of now in my chest and like the back of my throat a bit. I have trouble keeping up with the flow of a normal conversation. I have a hard time keeping up with the give and take of a conversation. Another one that I have shame around is, I do not recognize when others are trying to take advantage of me. God, that one's uncomfortable too. I do not recognize when others are trying to take advantage of me. Like the concerns I'm noticing, the thoughts I'm noticing is that people will think I'm like juvenile or immature or something that I can't tell. And that then I'll be like, oh my God, if we can't trust Joy to take basic safety precautions, then what else can't we trust her for? I have trouble keeping up with the flow of a normal conversation. I am awkward in turn taking interactions with others. I have a hard time keeping up with the give and take of a conversation. I do not recognize when others are trying to take advantage of me. So I'm having a very strong shame response. Like I don't have a mirror, but I can feel like my face is super hot. Like I'm shaky. I can feel in my body that there's like kind of light shakiness. We're just going to keep doing this. I'm sorry that this is what you're listening to. This is opposite action all the way. Oh, shoot, I just apologized. I am not apologizing for doing opposite action all the way. I am being skillful in this moment. Thank you for listening. That's one of the notes. Instead of apologizing, say thank you. So thank you for listening to me. Do opposite action all the way.
So I'm going to make public my personal characteristics or behaviors with people who won't reject me. Here's my characteristic. I have trouble keeping up with the flow of a normal conversation. I feel awkward in turn taking interactions with others. I have a hard time keeping up with the give and take of a conversation. I do not recognize when others are trying to take advantage of me. And nothing's happening. So this is step four, like all the way opposite actions, take in all the information from the situation. Like I'm saying this and I'm not being rejected. Like you're not rejecting me. I mean, maybe you are, you're doing it silently on your end and I'm not getting any of that information. That's actually key, right? This is one of the parts of doing opposite action for shame all the way. Because what I want to do, like where my brain wants to go is to assume that you're judging the hell out of me and you're making all sorts of assumptions about me, that your trust in me is decreasing a ton because you're like, oh my God, look at this person who can't even keep their life together. I'm having the concern that you're having all of those thoughts, that you listener are having all of those thoughts. So taking in all the information means what is happening right now. Right now, I'm sitting in my room. I am not being rejected right now. I still had shame come up, the idea of recording this. And right now, I am not being rejected. I am not in danger. And that's really, really important. Like, it's important that my brain becomes aware and takes note of the fact that what it's afraid of, what my brain is afraid of, is not happening right now. I have a hard time talking about this because oftentimes the check the facts skill, I mean, I use it for myself to invalidate me. Like I will use it as a way of being like, you're fine, Joy. Stop freaking out. You're not in danger. Everything's fine. That's jumping a bunch of steps, though. First off, it's incredibly invalidating. It doesn't acknowledge that my emotion is caused and comes from somewhere and is therefore valid. It also assumes that if I am made aware that my emotion is not justified, i.e. it does not fit the facts, that I can somehow automatically turn my emotion off, which is not how emotions work. The whole concept of, see, you're fine, stop freaking out, doesn't take into account that there's actually a process to the stoppage of said freak out. Someone telling me, see, Joy, you're not being rejected right now, so stop feeling shame. That's not going to work. It doesn't tell me how to stop feeling shame, only that I should stop feeling shame. And should, of course, is a judgment. Now, I can use skills to stop feeling shame. Absolutely. We've been talking about opposite action for most of this episode, in fact. But telling me to stop feeling shame doesn't take into account those skills. It doesn't take into account that there's a process. There's all sorts of things that are missing from this assertion of, see, you're fine, stop freaking out. I need to remind myself all the time <laughs> that I can notice that my emotions don't fit the facts and also validate that emotion and also tend to that emotion. I can take the necessary steps to address it and use specific skills that are appropriate for my circumstances rather than wallpapering over it by ordering myself to calm down. And that's why it's important to include my internal experience as part of the information that I'm taking in. Step four here on opposite action to shame is take in all the information from the situation. That includes my internal experience. We're not gonna pretend that's not happening. Like, those are facts. 
It is fact that I'm having a shame response. It is a fact that I am having thoughts, that I'm having concerns about what you're thinking. That's all fact. So I am having those thoughts, I am having those emotions, and I am not currently in danger. And I think that, I think this is one of those things where it really has to be an, an internal process. If somebody came along and was like, Joy, you're not in danger, calm down. Like that's super invalidating. Part of the reason why it works for me is because I'm choosing it. Like it's not being forced upon me. Somebody isn't demanding that I do it. Somebody is not using it as a tool to invalidate me. I am choosing in this moment to take in all of the things, all of the facts from the situation. I am choosing to take in my physiological response, like inside me, where I have muscle tension, where energy feels blocked, like I feel kind of like constipated, I guess. I'm choosing to take in the thoughts that I'm having. Yes, those are absolutely thoughts I'm having. Look at those thoughts. Hi, thoughts. And I'm also choosing to take in the fact that I am not in danger right now. I'm sitting in my room. My space heater is happily humming away. I am safe. I am not being rejected in this moment. And what that's doing is it's training my brain to go, hey, just because you have a shame response doesn't mean that you're actually being rejected. And I don't like the word just. Let me rephrase it. Having a shame response does not mean I'm being rejected. I can have a shame response without being rejected. It's a thing my body does. My brain will have concerns. Oh my God, my friends are going to think I'm a child who doesn't have basic social skills. Like I can have that concern. I can have the thought. I'm worried that that will happen. That can trigger shame. And I can have an emotional reaction. I can have a, a shame response in my body. And all of that can happen without me actually being rejected. Because that's the problem with emotions, right? Like if I'm feeling afraid, I will believe that I'm in danger. I'm like, well, if I'm feeling afraid, it's because there's a reason to feel afraid. And there is. There's a cause of that fear. And that fear may not fit the facts of the situation. Like I have periodic panic attacks at the gym. I used to have them all the time. Now I, I can feel them coming and I can manage them before they like blow up. It makes total sense that I would have fear show up at the gym. It makes total sense that I would have fear when I'm in a room with only men. It would make total sense that I would have fear when I'm seeing large like groups of men chatting together and like I'm hearing male voices. It makes total sense that having all of those experiences, like taking in that information at the same time as I am exerting myself, like I'm lifting weights, my heart rate is up. It makes total sense that I would take in that information about the men that are in the gym with my heart rate up and that I would feel like I'm in danger. Like that all makes sense. And I am not actually in danger. So that's why like taking in all the information, it's important to do it in a validating way, I think. Like, oh, I'm having these thoughts. I'm having these body sensations. And of course I would have those thoughts and those body sensations. Makes total sense. And brain, body, I need you to be aware that that reaction that you're having isn't aligned with the facts. Sometimes I have those reactions because that's what my body does, even when there is no threat. Sometimes I will have a thought that will trigger emotions. And of course, that thought would trigger those emotions. Of course, having the thought, no one will ever love me, being mentally ill precludes me from ever finding love. Of course, that thought would trigger despair. <laughs> like, of course it would. And feeling despair doesn't mean that my emotions are pointing to the truth. 
Feeling despair and having the thought that no one will ever love me does not mean that that is true, that no one will ever love me. It is true that I had the thought. It's true that I had the emotions. Having the thoughts and having the emotions doesn't make that thing true. That's a massive distinction. And I think that's why opposite action is so powerful because it's training my brain to acknowledge, hey, this thing that you're really, really scared of, we're going to test that and see how it goes. So I can have the emotion reaction of shame and I can have the thoughts. My friends are going to think I'm incredibly immature and juvenile that I struggle keeping up with conversations. Like that's a thought that I have. It doesn't mean that that is actually what will happen. Right now I am not feeling shame. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking hell. Why does this, I mean, like, why did this work? Joy, you just spent the last hour explaining why this works. But really doing it over and over and over again, saying I have trouble keeping up with the flow of a normal conversation, saying I feel awkward in turn taking interactions with others. I have a hard time keeping up with the give and take of a conversation. Saying that and then paying attention, it's kind of like, did it work? Did it happen? Saying those things and then paying attention, step four, taking all the information from the situation, it's basically saying to my brain, hey, the thing you thought was going to happen, did it happen? What my brain does is it looks for patterns and it wants to predict into the future as a way of keeping me safe. So it's good to test those predictions. It's vitally important. It's like recalibrating my instrument, my instrument being my brain. Like what happens if your bathroom scale, every time you step on it, it gets off by a pound. So if you step on it every day, by the end of the end of the year, it is off by 365 pounds. And if I relate to my bathroom scale as like the truth about how much I weigh, yikes, right? (laughs) So it's good to recalibrate. It's good to actually make sure that my prediction making machine is as accurate as, as can be expected, I guess. I mean, like, cause I can't tell the future. None of us can tell the future because what our brain does in order to predict the future is that it takes current experiences and past experiences and projects them into the future. And if I'm selectively cherry picking my data and saying, see, look how much shame I had when I talked about my struggles in keeping up with a conversation. I had such a huge shame response. Like, oh my God, that's super dangerous. I can't tell anybody about that. I must shut down, shut down, shut down. Don't tell anyone, go back in my closet, You know, keep everything even keeled. Of course, those are the thoughts that I have because shame did come up. Very, very, very strong shame came up. And it's also important for me to pay attention to the fact that I am not in danger. I wasn't being rejected. So yeah, I think opposite action is absolutely a recalibration of my brain and it works and it has worked. Let's see, I started learning this stuff in October of 2016. So five and a half years back then, like didn't want to feel sadness. Sadness felt very, very threatening. I didn't want to feel fear. Really, the only emotion that I had any experience in feeling was anger. And I was really super threatened by all these other emotions and avoided them. And I had to practice feeling them, like allowing myself to feel them and constantly check in of like, am I in danger right now while I'm feeling sad? Am I in danger right now if I'm feeling afraid? (laughs) I am becoming more skilled at that. There's still emotions I avoid. Clearly, shame is one of them. And there's certainly uh, intensities of emotion that I avoid. And the problem with that, if I allow myself to feel a little bit of sadness, but 
shut it down as soon as I start to feel more sadness. I'm training my brain that feeling strong sadness is dangerous. It's like we can't handle that. Of course, the irony being is the only way I can learn to handle that is to do the thing, (laughs) is to feel the sadness and then check in with myself. Hey, is everything okay? Are we still here? Have you been kicked out of your home? Did the world end? No? Okay. Hey, look, we can feel really strong sadness and the world doesn't end. What the fuck? (laughs) (sighs) So I'm going to, I'm going to wrap this up here, but I really want to drive home a very important point. That point being that this works for me because I am choosing to do this. Somebody else coming at me and wielding these skills like a cudgel, like a or stick to hit me with, it will not be effective. Now, my therapist can suggest some things. And I have a relationship with my therapist where that's part of our relationship, that they offer me coaching and support and suggestions on how to be skillful, because that is the context of our relationship, <laughs> that they help me process things, they support me around being skillful. So that's an expectation that I have of our relationship. And I still had At the beginning of when we started working together, I would reach out to them when I was struggling with something and they would write back, they would text back, you know, try using this skill or whatever. And I had a very strong emotional reaction. I had a, I felt like I was being invalidated. I had the thought that I was being invalidated because turns out what I really wanted before problem solving was for them to get my experience and then we can problem solve. So I made a request like, hey, before you offer solutions, can you validate And then they also made a request of me. They're like, hey, if you reach out, can you include in your text message what your request of me is? And so we have we have this lovely like pattern of communicating now because we both communicated to each other what we need from each other. Yeah. I mean, it it was all an experiment. It took several exchanges back and forth to kind of like weed everything out. Why am I mentioning any of this? Oh, that even with my therapist where I have that relationship, like an expectation that they are supporting me around being skillful, even then, it's really important for me to ask for their input about what skills I use. It's really important to me that they don't just volunteer that right out of the gate. And I don't know if that's other people's experiences. Like clearly, and I've mentioned this periodically through the podcast, I have a long, long, long history, a lifelong history of being invalidated. So that's kind of like my limiting reagent. That is the thing I need most all the time. (laughs) That is the, the ingredient that I need most in pretty much every interaction that I have with somebody because I'm running at a deficit and have been running at a deficit for almost 40 years now. So I'm hypersensitive to having anybody come in and and start fixing or start offering suggestions if I haven't felt validated yet. And that's one of my skills gaps, right? Like, I would like to live in a world where other people's invalidation of me don't, like, knock me off my axis for hours, days, weeks. Um, So that's one of the things I'm doing in exposure with my therapist is doing exposure to invalidation so that I can actually experience invalidation from other people and not have it feel like a body blow. The intent of the exposure is not to convince myself that it's not painful. That's not it at all. The intention of exposure is to be like, hey, let's get you a little bit more resilient so that the pain doesn't knock you on your ass every time. And in doing so, if I'm a little bit more resilient, I can be more effective in those situations. And say things like, hey, I get that you're trying to problem solve right now. That's not my chief need. What I need from you right now is validation. And if the person doesn't know how to validate, I can be like, great, that's really what I need right now. And if you don't have that skill, we can talk about something else. It allows me to 
actually look at the situation a little bit more, I guess, objectively of like what works and what doesn't work for me. Like if it turns out you don't have that skill of validation, then I won't have this conversation about my emotions with you because that is what I need right now is validation. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with me. These are my needs. And if you can't meet my needs, I need to go find somebody else who can, i.e. myself. That's the, that's the end goal is to be able to validate myself. So I've babbled on enough. Let's check in with future Joy and have her wind things down. Take it away. Welcome back to the present. So some final thoughts. I know that there was a lot of repetition in the episode you just heard because there's a lot of things I'm trying to really like drive home for myself. And in listening back to this, I realized that there's a gap in what I was sharing. You do opposite action when either the emotion does not fit the facts, so it's not justified, or you do opposite action when the emotion does fit the facts, so it is justified, but acting on the emotion won't be effective. And I don't know that acting on shame is ever really effective. Now, there may be reason to absolutely believe that you'll be rejected and thrown out of your home if you tell your family something about yourself. And it may make total sense to exercise some discretion and be picky about who you share your inner self with. And that is different than hiding because of shame. Shame causes you to hide, which causes you to feel more shame. And shame is all about who I am fundamentally is wrong and will get me kicked out of the group. And that's an emotion mind decision, as opposed to a decision that comes from, hey, I need to keep my job, or hey, I need to keep my housing. So I'm choosing not to share this part of myself that there's absolutely nothing wrong with, with my boss, coworkers, or family. That's a, a wise mind decision that also validates your own experience. Fun thing to note, since this recording, I did opposite action to shame with my closest friends and told them that I have trouble keeping up with the flow of conversation, I'm awkward in turn-taking interactions with others, I do not recognize when others are trying to take advantage of me. And you know what? They didn't give a flying fuck. None of them cared. In fact, most of them were like, hey, me too. So that was very validating and reassuring. And in fact, listening back to this recording, I kept having the thought, really, Joy, you were that worried about telling people? Because now that I've done opposite action to shame and told my friends and not been rejected, I don't have shame about it anymore. It's not even a thing I think about, which is weird. I mean, that's the whole point, and it's still weird. And in fact, since this recording, I've joined an adult autism meetup group, and I've made friends there, and we talk about our experiences really openly, and no one rejects me for struggling in these areas. If anything, they're all like, hell yes, me too, and that's pretty great. Another thing I wanted to mention is that this recording focused on doing opposite action to an emotion that is not justified. So my shame was not justified. And there is another case use that we didn't even talk about in any detail where you do opposite action to an emotion that is justified. And if you're interested in seeing examples of emotions that are justified, that fit the facts, check out Emotion Regulation Handout 8A, Examples of Emotions That Fit the Facts. Very aptly named. Which begs the question, why on earth would you do opposite action to a justified emotion? Well, per emotion regulation handout 10, you do opposite action to a justified emotion when acting on your emotions is not effective. And in a future episode someday, I don't know when, we will do an example of that. A final thing I want to mention before I go 
It is vital to consider the broader social context when asking whether an emotion is justified. One of the ways that systems of oppressions work is through invalidation. So white folks like myself telling black, indigenous, and other people of color that, no, no, you're not being oppressed. It's not that bad. You're fine. Cisgendered, heterosexual men telling queer and marginalized genders, no, no, you're not being oppressed. It's not that bad. You're fine. Able-bodied folks telling disabled folks, no, you're not being oppressed. It's not that bad. You're fine. And in all cases, the oppressing group, the group that's in power, maintains its power by defining what are justified emotions for the oppressed group to feel. And that is incredibly harmful. And in fact, that's one of the criticisms of CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. It can be really invalidating because it doesn't consider larger systems at play. And I want to quote a TikTok user at my destination, who's a black queer therapist. And in the video of theirs that I'm quoting, they explain how CBT is invalidating in a really masterful way. The link to that video is in the description. Some context before I read a transcript of their video. They mentioned the murder of Mike Brown, a black teenager who was murdered by a cop in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014. So this is at my destination's video describing talking to their CBT therapist about their feelings in the wake of Mike Brown's murder. Around the time of the murder of Mike Brown, I told my ex-therapist about my fear of police, that I don't feel safe around them. And I was scared for my nephew, who was playing football and basketball and was getting bigger. And the first thing that came out of her mouth was, what is the evidence for and against that thought? No validation or anything. One of the pillars of CBT is challenging cognitive distortions and restructuring them. She called my fears distortions, said that I was overgeneralizing and catastrophizing tried to make me reframe it into essentially not all police. When CBT was created, it ignored historical, social, and cultural context. So when therapists use CBT without an anti-oppressive lens, marginalized patients get hurt. When I brought this up, I felt dismissed. I felt ignored. I felt like I should go it alone. So this TikToker at my destination said, when therapists use CBT without an oppressive lens, marginalized patients get hurt. The same can be true for DBT. That's what I meant earlier in the recording when I said that the DBT skill check the facts can be used as a way to invalidate and that I use it as a way to invalidate myself. Questioning the justification of an emotion without considering the larger social context can absolutely be invalidating. That larger social context is part of the facts and must be included when considering whether an emotion fits the facts, i.e. is justified. Which is why it's vital that therapists use an anti-oppressive lens. It's vital that marginalized groups have access to therapists who represent them. And it's vital that marginalized folks have the ability to become therapists. All of that is super, super important. Alrighty, I'm going to descend from my soapbox and go watch a horror movie because it's Halloween. Stay safe out there, y'all. And as always, thank you for listening. If you like what you're hearing and you find it useful, please do consider supporting me on Patreon. The link is in the description. And also feel free to drop me a line on social media if you have any questions, comments, concerns, queries, etc. I still don't know how to end this, so I'm going to just do my usual thing and end it super abrupt. This has been Let's Therapize That Shit with your host, me, Joy Gerhard. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends about it. I'll see you next time. Intro and outro music is Swan Lake Opus 20 by Tchaikovsky, performed by the London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Anatoly Fistulari, and released on LP by Richmond High Fidelity London Records in 1952.